you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. We come to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, we'll read verses 1 through 17. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us here, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You can turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. We've come to the end of the first three miracles. And we said that chapters 8 and 9 are a set of three sets of three. Three miracles, three times. And between the sets, you have dialogues uh, or episodes on the nature of the life of discipleship, on what it means to follow Christ, um, what it looks like, who he calls. And it's worth remembering that the Lord didn't come just to put on a good show. Um, he came to gather disciples. Uh, he came to gather followers. 
Uh, he came to bring people out of the death that they were living into the life that is fellowship with him. And these brief discussions on discipleship remind us of that. That Jesus isn't someone just to be looked upon, evaluated as someone interesting. Um, he is the Lord who has the right to summon and who indeed does summon. Not hypothetical followers, but you to follow him. And so we take up Matthew 8, starting in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the heaven have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to receive your word. Attend my tongue as you open up the meditation of your servant's heart. The strange provision that you've made for your people to have your word not just read, but proclaimed. Not just read, but explained. Not just read, but pressed to the heart. Not just read, but issuing forth in specific calls to specific people. Oh Lord, these things are true and wonderful, and yet they are above us. They are beyond us. And so we ask that wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit, even now as Christ works his purposes, gathering followers, strengthening followers, making known the riches of who you are. Father, we acknowledge that sometimes your word is strange to us, sometimes it is hard for us, but we would heed it, Lord, and so help us. Help us to understand, help us to receive, help us to respond in faith, whatever you call us to do. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. What have I gotten myself into? Have you ever asked yourself that? What have I gotten myself into? I remember asking myself that very question in 2007 when I found myself on an increasingly lonely bus in the middle of nowhere in Ukraine. We had joined the Peace Corps and the way that it worked was that you lived in various parts of northern Ukraine for the first three months to acclimate you to what it meant to be a volunteer, a Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine. 
And we were on that bus where they were dropping us off in very remote portions of a very strange place. And I found myself asking, what have I gotten myself into? All of the romantic notions which had accompanied my understanding, my thoughts driving me to volunteer were slowly vanishing. And all that remained was this cold and difficult strangeness and a loneliness that I had never before experienced. Maybe you've had an experience similar where you have a certain set of expectations and then when you enter the reality, you find that those expectations vanish quickly. And it's difficult. Now, that's just part of life. On the one hand, there's always going to be that gulf between expectation and reality. You don't really know what you're doing or what you're getting yourself into until you're in it. <laughs> and there's a loveliness to that. Isn't that part of the surprise of marriage? Parting the surprise of having kids, owning a home, visiting a new place. You have certain ideas, and then you make room for those ideas to give way and something new and lovely to take its place. But sometimes the experience can be incredibly jarring, where you have the wrong expectations or you have opposite expectations. And the reality is so challenging, so jarring, such a departure from what you thought it would be that a moment of crisis opens up and you bail. The church is reading Pilgrim's Progress right now. One of the first who joined Pilgrim is, you guys are doing a great job in class, I see. It's pliable, that's right. <laughs> and pliable bails at the first sign of trouble. I didn't expect this. I wasn't anticipating difficulty. I didn't know that this was coming. If I had known this was coming, I certainly wouldn't have gone along. There's a sense in which Christ here tells us what to expect as lives laid down in his service, as we follow after him. The old saying Forewarned is forearmed. <laughs> this isn't a replacement for the experience that inevitably comes as we encounter the difficulties in the life of following Christ. But it is helpful to know that our Lord would have us enter into his service with understanding of what it means to follow him. What the cost actually is. He uses terms like that elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels. Count the cost. Consider the cost. Yes, I have life. Yes, forgiveness is with me. But there is a cost, beloved. This is not easy. We hear this come out in these two exchanges. They have a certain set of expectations, and Jesus challenges those expectations. Just at the basic level, the first expectation seems to be, I can do this. This shouldn't be that difficult. I'll go wherever you go. To which Jesus says, no, you can't. It's going to be harder than you think. 
At base, the other expectation seems to be, well, I've got to attend to this other stuff first. There's going to be all sorts of stuff that comes up that legitimizes me putting following you on pause. That you're going to take your rightful place within my understanding. And not me take my rightful place in your kingdom. Jesus challenges both of these wrong-headed notions about what it means to follow him. And it's the same challenge that comes to us because we have wrong-headed notions, don't we? That we entertain constantly. Isn't that no small part of the grief that we experience in the midst of trials and tribulations? I didn't sign up for this. This isn't what I wanted. This is more than I bargained. What have I gotten myself into? And so it can be helpful to remind ourselves that the Lord tells us that these things are going to attend the life of following him. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but at least he removes the element of surprise. And so what does he call us to this morning in the life of discipleship? First, he calls us to be ready to suffer. Second, he calls us to live. Those are the two points. Called to suffer. Called to live. The first exchange is 19 and 20. A scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a strange exchange, isn't it? It's spare, as many of these episodes are, so you're left attending to the details. Most striking is perhaps this is a scribe. This is a scribe. We've met the scribes before. Scribes were in the court of Herod. When Herod received word from the Magi that there was a king to be born, he turns to the scribes, and the scribes who know the word tell him the appointed time of the Christ. So they have an interesting place in society. Apparently, they've got some clout. Apparently, they've got some standing. They inhabit the courts of kings. They have a certain esteem. They have a certain rank about them. But we also know that in the eyes of the people, that rank is shrinking quickly. Because we met them at the end of chapter 7 as the people are in awe of Jesus for he teaches as one with authority and not as their scribes. So he feels like things are changing maybe. People once flocked to hear his take and now they're not so interested in him. Maybe it's reading too much into it but perhaps feeling that position slipping away He tries to reestablish it by going to Jesus and saying, well, I I don't want to lose this standing that I had, so I got to get what you alone can give so that I can maintain the status quo. Maybe that's reading too much into it, but maybe not. Most commentators are suspicious. You read Matthew Henry, you read John Calvin, and they're very suspicious about this scribe for a number of reasons. It whiffs at the very least of being a bit self-assured, doesn't it? 
I'll go with you wherever you go. I've, I've got this. Like, I can, this is not a big deal. I'll go where you go. It sounds a little bit like Peter later. If everybody abandons you, I won't abandon you. Everyone else might forsake you, but I'm not going to forsake you. There's something incompatible about being self-assured with the life of the Christian faith. There's something incompatible about pride, about evaluating yourself and thinking, yeah, I've got what it takes. Jesus has already laid forth that the gateway into the life of discipleship is not riches, but poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not taking stock of everything that you are and everything that you have and coming to the conclusion that I'm probably going to make the greatest servant Christ has ever seen. I've got that kind of stuff in me. No, rather, it's an evaluation of what you have, your native capacities, and feeling not up to it, woefully inadequate. Isn't that the paradox? It sits at the heart of the Christian faith. He's far from the proud, near to the lowly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. So there's something in this man's statement that's sitting ill. That's what Jesus presses home. He doesn't accept it. He challenges it. I think it's too far to say he rejects it. Calvin says he rejects him. Matthew Henry says he rejects him as a follower. I think that's probably taking it a little too far, but he certainly speaks a word that challenges him. He says it's not exactly what you think it is. The scribe is a part of the intelligentsia. He's a part of the highest class of society. And he sees in Jesus just sort of a life of, moving about, but a life that doesn't call him to sacrifice. A life that doesn't call for any true loss to be had. That seems to come forth in what he says. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus says, it's not just that I move from place to place in this world. Right? Scribe says, I'll go wherever you follow. Jesus says, it's not just that I move from place to place in this world. It's that I have no place in this world. The smallest, most insignificant creatures have a rightful and legitimate place in this order of things. But the Son of Man is going to be fundamentally rejected by this order of things. It's not just motion for motion's sake that he is setting forth as the life of discipleship. It is a fundamental placelessness in the face of the world's hostility to the true king. John's Gospel states this plainly. He was in the world... The world was made through him, but the world did not acknowledge him. He appeared to his own, yet they did not receive him. Rejection. 
John highlights the maker there. Christ highlights the true king, the son of man, that seems to be highlighting the reality of, I'm the true king. This world was made for man. Man became a beast. I am the true man. I'm what man was supposed to be. I'm the one who's over this world, and yet this world only has a place for animals. That's striking. It'd be hard not to hear Daniel 7 in this. It's not just wandering for the sake of wandering. It's hostility, which has generated a placelessness. That's what he calls us to consider as disciples, that on some level following him means participating in his placelessness in this world. That's much deeper, much more challenging than what the scribe is envisioning here. I'll I'll move about with you. Jesus says, following me means you're not at home anywhere in this world. That you forfeit the very notion of home at its most basic level. Think about that. You know what traveling's like. Remember having to move about Ukraine, living out of a backpack. You do that in your 20s, I guess, for a time. But there is this deep unsettledness about it. The older you get, the more you feel it. You want to be home. You want a place. Jesus says in a very real way, following him means placelessness in this world, beloved. There's any number of ways you could press that, but we get pretty comfortable here, don't we? It's easy for us to forget that this earth is not our home. This world is not our home, beloved. Do we forget that? And we speak those things week in and week out, but to bring that into the weekly reality when it comes to clinging to the things of this world, when it comes to having our hearts rise and fall with the ebbs and tides of this world, its successes and its failures, all of it seems to testify that we say we're not at home in this world, but bringing that into our conscious lives of faith is another thing altogether, isn't it? Jesus says we're not at home in this world, beloved. But at the same time, We're with him in this world, beloved. And where he is, their home is. He's preparing this disciple for a life of difficulty that goes deeper than inconvenience. The scribe's willing to hazard a certain amount of inconvenience. I'll follow you where you go. But he seems to have no notion that there's going to be a hostility that now exists between him and And the very place he just called home. John 15, 18, and 20. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. A servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Children, do you know the story of Robin Hood? 
Where does Robin Hood live? Sherwood Forest, that's right. Why would you ever live in a forest? That's a terrible place to live. Camping is the worst. You don't, you don't, people don't live in forests. <laughs> it's uncivilized. It's dangerous. Why would he live in the forest? Well, because there's a usurper king on the throne, Prince John. And Robin Hood is loyal to the true king, good King Richard. That's what Jesus prepares his followers to understand in a very real way. You're outlaws because your very existence defies the God of this world. Following a criminal, beloved. The world designated him a criminal. That's why they crucified him, beloved. We follow him, which makes us in the eyes of the world outlaws. Jesus prepares us to live as such, to be vulnerable to the world's hostility, the same hostility which crucified him. It's difficult to be rejected. Have you ever experienced this? It's doubly difficult to bear rejection in grace and dignity. <laughs> it's triply difficult to bear it in love. And it's most difficult of all when the rejection itself is of the grossest injustice. Imagine you come home one day to find strangers in your house. And not only do they refuse to leave, but they threaten you. And they somehow maneuver the authorities to get rid of you, the rightful owner. I suspect your blood would boil just at the thought of it. Beloved, this is how the world has treated its maker. He was in the world. The world was made through him. And yet the world did not acknowledge him. Beloved, this is how we have treated the Son of Man in our sinful, deranged arrogance. For it was our sins that put him there, beloved. Every week we rehearse the night he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed, the night he was betrayed. This haunting refrain sits near the heart of our life together. The night he was betrayed, not by nameless, faceless individuals, beloved, but by us. The sad part of the story is that we're not really Robin Hood, beloved. We're the sheriff of Nottingham. By virtue of our sin, complicit in the sinful usurpation of the throne by Prince John, we're not loyal to Richard. We're loyal to that scoundrel king by virtue of our sin. Marvel that he experienced the indignation of rejection as the Son of Man lays down his life to ransom our souls, to ransom our lives, to bring us out from underneath the bondage of that treacherous, usurping king and bring us into the service of the Son of Man, the one who's recognizable as a human being. A true image bearer, indeed the true image bearer of the living and true God. Beloved, this is the king who summons us. It's not that others have treated him treacherously. It's that we have treated him treacherously, even in our sin, beloved. 
It's a return to that cosmic treason, that preference for the dragon to the word of the true and living God, which is life. It's another worldly love we see on display as the Son of Man, even at this juncture, knows that he's going to be rejected and that that rejection is going to lead to the cross and he's willingly undertaking it to gather followers. Beloved, that was no slight cost. But he would also have you prepared to share with him in that rejection. We also do well to remember that the call of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a promise that we will have comfortable lives. It's not even a promise to safety. They're about to go into the faraway places where they meet the demons. They're about to go in a boat on the sea, which is one of the most dangerous places for a human being to be. The call of Christ is not a call to safety. It's not a call to comfort. It's not a call to health. It's not a call to prosperity. Rather, it is a promise that whatever danger, toil, or trial we encounter, he is with us. That's what is entailed in the call of Christ. In this world, in this world, in this hostile complex to who I am as creator, in this hostile complex to who I am as redeemer, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's not that difficulty doesn't await us. It's not that danger doesn't await us. It's not that heartbreaking perplexity doesn't await us. It's not that toil and trial and trouble, indeed persecution itself doesn't await us. It's that whatever awaits us, Christ is with us, beloved. And that's better. Because he only does what is good. And so we can know that it's better. That's what we sing. Though I walk through death's valley, where shadows are near, because you are with me, no evil I'll fear. Your rod and your staff bring me comfort and cheer. For to be with Christ even in death's valley is far better than to be without him in the safest configuration of comfort that this world can afford you. For with him is life, beloved. And that's the second call, the call to live. He goes on, he has another exchange. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. If the call of Christ is a call to hazard the rejection and the suffering that comes with being identified with this criminal king in the world's evaluation, it's also a call to true life. That's what he assumes here. This is another strange exchange. Again, we can remark that these exchanges invite us into a deep wrestling. What is he talking about here? What is he calling us to? How is he understanding what these disciples are, are thinking and bringing before him? What is this man requesting? Is this a delay of a couple of days? My father's died, I need to bury him. That would mean a week at most. Or is this 
the request for an indefinite delay. I still have a father, and I'm beholden unto him until he dies. The first would be a brief delay, the other an indefinite delay. It's tough to tell, and people are divided on this. I think the plainest is that the father's dead. That, I mean, that just seems to be the simplest reading of the text. But in either case, it's worth noting that this is a striking call. This man sets forth a legitimate, you might even say a good duty, and the Lord says, follow me now. That would be very striking if this man is in the throes of grief. Very, very striking. And only slightly less striking if the father's death is still a little ways off. But what is plain is Jesus calls him now. Now. This is important. This is urgent. And in fact, that seems to come plainly across when we consider that everyone would have heard this duty as the most important duty conceivable for a son. That seems to be the starting point. Jesus isn't downplaying that. He's just stating a staggering reality, namely that something even more important is here. Something more urgent is here. And it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think we do well with sort of urgency particularly when it comes to calls in the Christian life. We live in a leisure economy. (laughs) Everything is leisure. We do everything leisurely. 99% of what we put our hand to is leisurely. Furthermore, we're quite comfortable, and so there's really nothing of a crisis in our own minds that would lend itself to feel the urgency of Christ's call. I'm fine. I've got time for this. This is Levin. If you remember the story in Anna Karenina, Levin has to prepare himself to take communion, and Levin doesn't think much about the church or the claims of the church, but he goes and he prepares himself by fasting, and he receives the instruction that's necessary. And even as he's receiving the instruction, he hears something deeply important in what they're saying. And he gets to the end of the instruction and he says, I've got to grapple with that. I've, I've, got, I've got to come to terms with that. But later, later, there's plenty to be done now. There's plenty of time for that. And there's a sense in which Entering into the house of mourning as this man would have been, would have been the most opportune time to press upon his heart the urgency of the call of Christ. Because death is before him, beloved. We live so much of our life in the delusion of permanence, don't we? I'm healthy, I'm fine, things are well, today's the same as yesterday, next day will be the same as the one before that. 
Things are fine. Things will go on. Things are uninterrupted. I've got nothing but time until you don't. <laughs> and that comes suddenly. This man seems prepared to hear that because he's in the house of death. He knows vividly the end of all flesh. Jesus also seems to be telling him that, look, even the best of works done apart from me are just going to be another round of the dead burying the dead. <laughs> the best of works, this is the best of works. It's just going to result in another round of the dead burying the dead. There's so many things that are striking about this exchange, aren't there? Notice that the Lord is not to be had on our terms. That's striking, isn't it? He's the Lord. Do we begrudge him even that? Like we entertain this notion that everything is negotiated. Everything has to be configured to my preferences. Everything has to be configured to my understanding. You can tailor make anything these days. Your preference realized into actuality with the click of a button. Jesus says it's not your terms. Your preferences are no small part of the problem. Your understanding is no small part of the problem. Your affections are no small part of the problem. What issues forth from you is the problem. <laughs> Praise God that he confronts us in that way, right? Because if he didn't, we'd just be left to ourselves into this dark spiral of death, which is this endless rehearsing of dark, deathly desires, darkened understanding. He says, I'm not to be had on your terms. Here to come to me on my terms. In other words, he says, I'm everything or I'm nothing because of who I am. That's not illegitimate. That would be illegitimate for any of us to say, not for him. Why? Beloved, he's the maker, he's the creator, and he's the king. We come to Christ on his terms. And astonishingly, he says, there's nothing legitimate that comes between my call and your obedience. Nothing. I mean, just think about how challenging that is. All sorts of things legitimately come between me and his call. My circumstances, my frame of soul, how tired I am, what I think is good or right. I plead all those things as legitimate excuses every day, and you do too. Don't we? Mine are the circumstances which exempt me from forgiving others. I've been wronged to a degree that you don't understand. Because of those circumstances, I don't, I, like, I can't, I mean, maybe on other terms, but not those. Mine are the difficulties. Mine are the circumstances. My frame is the exception, and so on and so forth. 
He says plainly, there's no excuse. There's no excuse. Come with me. Come with me. Come with me. Notice he also doesn't say obey first and then come with me. In a very real way, the man is saying, I have to fulfill the law. Look, I need to fulfill the law first, and then I'll add you on at the end. This is the fifth commandment. Make no mistake. This is a good work. Make no mistake. So from one angle, this man's saying, no, I need to obey the law, and then I'll come to you. Jesus says, you come to me, and then the life that we live together in fellowship is the fulfillment of the law. You can't flip that order, beloved. <laughs> you come to Christ to live, and the life that's lived through faith in him is the discharge of the life of love. But perhaps the most striking thing about this is that Jesus calls him to live. The entire way that he frames this is, apart from me, there's death. Apart from me, there's only death. It's just one iteration of death following the next. Let the dead bury their dead. The whole sad story of the world summed up right there. The dead burying their dead. The soon-to-be dead burying the already dead. The spiritually dead burying the actually dead. Those are basically two angles on the same reality. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Everyone, everywhere, for all time, apart from the grace and mercy of God. Apart from the intrusion of the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, which says, come to me and live. Apart from Christ, everybody's just moving flowers around, beloved. Apart from Christ, everybody's just tending to one patch of grass or another. Grass withers. Flower fades. As lovely as it might look, as meaningful as it might appear, you know how it ends. Dust and ashes. Death and judgment. Flannery O'Connor's first story is called The Geranium. It's a really poignant story. An old man from the South has to move to New York City with his daughter, and he hates it. He's miserable. And his one comfort is that there's a geranium in the window across the alley. He loves looking at that flower. In a very real it's the in a very real way, it's the only thing sustaining him until one morning he wakes up and it's not there. And the flower has fallen six stories. And it lays mangled, dead on the cruel New York street below. The hope of man dashed to pieces. It's a sad picture, isn't it? It's the story of man apart from Christ. What else does it mean to put your hope in things that can't sustain us? What else? I mean, choose the best of things in this life and put your hope in them. The best of things. Even if you have the best wife, the best husband, the best kids, 
the best grandkids. Put your hope in them. They're going to die. They can't sustain whatever iteration of loveliness. It's the best geranium conceivable. It's still a geranium. It can't even sustain itself falling six stories, let alone six centuries. It all fades, beloved, and it would be painful beyond bearing if there wasn't one standing before you right now saying, come to me and live. I have life, beloved. In him was life. And the life was the light of man, John 1.14. Everyone who believes in the Son has everlasting life, John 3.36. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. He knows the problem. It's sin and death. He is the solution. He's righteousness and life. Every story apart from him ends the same way. But every story in him receives the abundance of life that he alone can bring. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I shall raise him up on the last day. Beloved, the one who was raised is the only one who can raise. And he's the one calling you. Make no mistake. He's calling you to follow him now and for all of your days. There's nothing more urgent. There's nothing more important. There is the call of Christ that says, come. Follow me and live. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Strengthen us in the conviction that your word is true, that the call of Christ has issued forth and even now beckons us, Lord, whether for the first time or continues to press us on as we've embarked on this life of faith and still find him calling us. Strengthen us to hear, O Lord. Strengthen us to receive it in faith. Enable us to exercise that faith as we heed the call. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.